Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part one of a new series called Me Speak Babel. Okay, we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel story. It's a strange one, and it's strange enough that I'm going to spend a lot of time on it to the point that you will probably switch over to YouTube in about 10 minutes. So my hope for this blogger podcast is that it does not drive you back into the arms of politics, porn, or video games, so I'll do my best to keep it moving along. I may have already lost most of you just at the mention of those candies. Uh, after all, if the sound of music was remade today, the lyrics would have to change to make sense to anyone. Um, here's a sample clip of what I envisioned from the new version of the sound of music. It would go something like, Netflix and porn and football on Sundays. These are a few of our favorite things. Okay, that's the only time I'm going to sing in this entire show, probably. Uh, but on the surface level, the Tower of Babel, it reads like a tale of where languages came from in the same spirit of fables like how the tiger got its stripes. So you may pass over the text of this story and think, isn't that cute? It's a story of where the many human languages came from. And like the Garden of Eden story, you can read this one and literally you can take a literal reading of it and then you will yawn and close the book and then return to your Netflix and porn. And doing so, you will miss the entire point of the story of the Tower of Babel. So there is another layer, much deeper than the literal, and you can scratch the surface using your fingernail and realize that there are multiple layers of paint here. Uh, this is why it's a timeless story. And you know, on this blog podcast, I like talking about things like Little Red Riding Hood and Rumpelstiltskin and all that, but um, first, for the, this story, let's understand that the word Babel means gate to God or gateway to God. Um, that should tell you there is more happening than a simple tower construction project happening. You could even call it a stairway to heaven, but I'm not here to talk about Led Zeppelin, despite the hundreds of hours that I've listened to the band. Still, that song title is a phrase that is relevant to this or even possibly a reference to the Tower of Babel. So, and if you ask five people the meaning of the song Stairway to Heaven, you will probably get five answers. And my money, my money's on the Lord of the Rings interpretation being closest to the mark since Led Zeppelin band members were Tolkien nerds. Um, however, even if Stairway to Heaven is about Arwen and Aragorn, uh, the Lord of the Rings is a very Catholic book. And so in a wide circling way, we come right back to the Tower of Babel story anyway. The same variety of interpretations can, that happens with Stairway to Heaven can come from readers of the Tower of Babel story. And I think if we called it the Gate to God story, we would probably be at a better starting point. I think Babel throws people off. Um, the gate being built in the story is a ziggurat, which is a pagan temple of the ancient world. The location may have been Eridu in modern-day Iraq, or it may have been elsewhere. I linked to, there's several places where they think it might have been, but archaeology um, is, has several locations possible. It's not particularly important where it was built, because lots of these ziggurats existed in ancient times. Now, if you have the idea of some giant tower that touches the sky, you need to first stop and understand that the ancient people were not idiots. They weren't that stupid. They knew a tower could not be built to the sky, probably better than we do, since they didn't even have steel. Uh, even a 100-foot 
height structure would have been an engineering uh, marvel back then. So if you want to get anything out of the story, you have to put aside your presentism and your unconscious bias of today. Presentism is the modern bias and assumption that people that didn't have smartphones were only slightly higher than baboons in terms of mental and intellectual acumen. So what is a ziggurat? It is a temple built as a home base for rituals and sacrifices to gods of the lowercase mythological variety. Archaeologists have found these structures with staircases to a central altar where worship and sacrifice was made to gods of the lowercase g uh, kind of god. The most famous god of the ancient world was the storm god or sky god. And they go, he goes by many names like Baal or Marduk or Zeus or Jupiter. Um, they're all actually the same god just shifted from one culture to another. And that too is an important thing to keep in mind as we go along. So... Um, at the core of the story is God observing this construction project of this gate to God. And the people in charge are intending to build it, quote, to reach the sky. So why the sky? Because that's where the sky God lives. Sometimes he lives in a mountain, uh, but the sky God throws the lightning bolts. That's his job. He's a, it's a fertility God. He's a sky God. He brings the rain. So along with the sky god, there was a whole list of other gods like the moon god and the sun god. There's even um, terms like father sky, who was a more primordial god in these same cultures. Um, and I've talked a lot about that in the About Uranus series of this podcast. But in those stories, the older god was knocked out by the storm god in a battle in the spiritual realm. So this too is important to keep in mind as the tale of Zeus defeating his father Uranus plays into the story of the Tower of Babel very much as well. Um, one, one quick side note, the, the Tower um, of, there was a temple at Ur, which is where uh, Abraham is called out of. He's called, of, called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and where he lived, there was a moon worship of a, a goddess named Nana, I believe. Anyway, there was a ziggurat of Ur as well. Um, but we'll talk more about the storm god here. Uh, because he's one of the most important ones in the ancient world, the ancient mythology, and anyone who knows Greek myth or any, any mythology is aware of the storm god, at least to some degree. The interesting thing about mythology is how celestial objects like the moon and natural phenomena like storms get translated into spirits. Uh, this is mythology in a nutshell, I guess you could say, and we assume the ancient people were just trying their best to explain away what could not be explained by science, since there was no such thing as science. There were no telescopes. So in our presentism bias, we look at these tales as explanations of a, for a pre-scientific age. These are just cute tales from primitive people who, if they were around today, we would just pat them on the head and send them away with a dum-dum. A little sucker and hope they enjoy that because they're obviously um, lower lower than us in our presentism so what non-believers and soul deniers today have uh, they use it as a shield against all things supernatural and it's a saying known as the it's the god of the gaps so the idea is that we only assume god exists for things that we cannot explain yet and this is full-blown presentism if you are not an anti-presentist you are a presentist uh, for example, the reason the Irish no longer believe that fairies bring illness is because we know what germs are. We can see germs under microscopes. Um, until we knew about germs, we blamed fairies, 
That's the idea. In other words, since we couldn't explain illness, we pondered off on fairies and, you know, to some degree, God. However, uh, right now, science is still claiming to look for a mythical bat of the gaps in the COVID story, while we all know that there probably was no bat, but there most certainly was a very large virology lab. So the great irony is that um, the bat doesn't exist, but we have invented and mythologized a bat now by the very same people who mock any idea of fairies or spirits. So you can see how fairies and spirits do get invented, just like bats can. Um, we could get lost here in talking about scapegoating and human nature and mimetic desire and all those things, but let's stay on track. Uh, the God of the Gaps idea is a modern argument to reduce all religion to superstitious nonsense. Um, it's an idea that modern writers like um, Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins have campaigned hard to sell. There's just one problem with both the fairy stories and with Carl Sagan. Neither of them, neither of their concepts match the concept of the God of Christianity. So a quote from Carl Sagan illustrates the, project, the problem perfectly. He was very close to understanding the God of Christianity, but he was bothered by fairy believers who kept moving God into the gaps. This illustrates the problem with how bad conceptions of what the Christian God is and how that brings so much confusion. Here's a quote from Carl Sagan. In some respects, science has far surpassed religion in delivering awe. How is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought? The universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, it's more subtle, more elegant. God must be even greater than we dreamed. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God is a little God and I want him to stay that way. So in other words, Carl had clearly never read the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Carl is actually very close to understanding the awe of God in the way that Catholics understand God. And whoever he is talking about in that quote has no understanding of God as he is understood in the church. So the God of Israel is unique in both conception and power, as Yahweh does not live in the universe like the pagan gods. The God of Christianity, the Trinity, is complete a whole that encompasses both the universe and our hearts. It is something far beyond what Carl is talking about. Um, now, on the other hand, God is far simpler to understand than Zeus or the storm god in that he is one god existing forever outside of space and time. He does not have a really wild family tree that slightly changes in every culture, so you have to memorize 60 names of um, and translate them across Sumeria to Greece to Jupiter or to uh, Rome. Um, <clears throat> the god of the god of Israel, um, the Trinity, the god of the Trinity, is much simpler to understand. But at the same time, he is infinitely more complex in that we can never understand him at all. We can understand God, and we can never understand God. So Sagan was an honest agnostic, um, whereas Dawkins is, um, uh, I'd say, more of a dishonest atheist in a lot of his arguments. There's another jarring quote where Carl Sagan showed that he was talking about believers that did not understand the Christian God at all. He said, this is the quote, your God is too small for my universe, um, to which anyone who spends any time in the catechism can tell you, no kidding, Carl, uh, that's been a known fact for 4,000 years. Cave people knew it, and they didn't even have telescopes. Uh, what amazes me most today is how science assumes that all religious people are merely superstitious buffoons 
But when they begin to talk about God, they're describing a pagan concept of lowercase gods, not the understanding of the God of Israel, and certainly not the Trinity. And this is where bad instruction of the faithful leads to a real mess. And as far as bad training and catechesis goes, Catholics have a lot of explaining to do. Um, we have dropped the ball horribly for about three generations now in teaching something as basic as how can we speak about God? Uh, God is bigger than Carl Sagan's universe. Uh, the universe alone can't explain Carl Sagan. There's a great quote by Peter Lawler that said, Physics can't explain the physicist. Physics by itself simply explains away the physicist and much else. Far bigger than our conception or intellect can handle, God transcends our minds. He is not in the gaps. He created all the gaps. And no matter how many gaps we figure out, there will be more gaps. Like Sagan, who seemed to realize that we had overtaken God in terms of knowledge about the universe, the brightest minds of the Middle Ages thought God kept the planets afloat with some kind of crystals. But that was never doctrine. That was never uh, doctrine of the church, some kind of crystal floating thing in the sky. That's only what the intellectuals of the Middle Ages believed. This is why the church moves and decides slowly, like the Ents in Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is why the church doesn't leap in when economic and tech fads offer utopia. The truth comes out over time, and science is a small part of revealing God's world to us. It's not the only thing revealing it. It's worth noting that in a hundred years, we may realize that much of modern science is wrong. This happens repeatedly in our history, and what is a solid known today could be laughable later. Uh, phrenology was the examination of bumps on our heads for figuring out personalities, and, and that was a serious science for a while, and now it's a complete joke. And I think uh, various fields should probably be beware of the history of certain fields that have gone away, um, particularly sociologists, beware. Uh, but God does not change, nor does the proper concept of God change from Genesis to, to today. Um, to assume otherwise is to be exactly like the intellectuals of the Middle Ages who are sh surely certain of their ideas about crystals in the universe with the, the uh, spheres out there. Um, you know, and now we just laugh at that. It doesn't make any sense. It's not right. Um, to assume all is known today is the classic mistake of the falls in Genesis too. So whenever we think we know everything, um, we are actually falling into the same traps of what the people in Genesis are falling into. What often seems to be the case is that non-believers have a bad concept of God stemming from various causes. I certainly did. I certainly didn't understand what the concept of God was of the Christian God because there's been so much noise over the last 100 years, um, especially in my lifetime, to belittle a, a God and try to uh, match up something like the flying spaghetti monster as the equivalent of the tr God of the Trinity. Um, those kind of things really uh, give people a bad understanding of it. and They'll never take it. You just won't understand it if you're thinking of a, a pasta thing in the outer space, just like George uh, Bertrand Russell's teapot that was out in outer space. And he was saying that was just like God. Um, it's, you're not even starting from the same premise. Uh, I think the main problem is that it's very, it is hard to understand the Trinitarian God properly. I, I certainly didn't, didn't myself. Uh, the reason we don't is because the loudest voices proclaiming God today confuse the right meaning of the word. 
In fact, I don't think most Christians know the meaning of the word God uh, because he just seems to be a vending machine to so many. And here's where I resist ranting about the message preached in the pr prosperity gospel. And someday when this podcast becomes even mildly um, techie, I will add a barf noise right here. I'll have a button to add a barf noise whenever I say prosperity gospel. Um, if you think Zeus and the God of Israel are the same thing, you cannot read the Tower of Babel story. And don't, don't do it. Don't even try. Why waste your time? You cannot understand it if you don't even understand what the writer was talking about. If you don't have the proper idea of God in place, you will fail before you start. It's like beginning a calculus problem when you've only made it through Algebra 2. It's like interpreting a modern biology book using the theory of the four humors from Galen, the ancient Greek physician. It doesn't work, and you will be lost on reading the first sentence. It's a waste of time. To understand the God of Israel, you have to backtrack and realize a few things. First, you have to rip out your modern assumptions and biases and reset because all of the noise around God in our media has created a windstorm in your head. Everyone is trying to put their spin on what God is, and until you find the right language, the crazy interpretations will continue to spin. In my own surfacing into the light, if you want to call it that, I slowly realized that I had cut myself off with a little help from my friends and much help from the media around me. I'd sliced myself off, walled myself in uh, because of various reasons. Um, in trying to find myself, I got lost. And the reasons I lost God was because of exactly the list of reasons uh, that's in the introduction of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I had forgotten the right concept of God and overlooked what I knew was true and therefore rejected the entire idea of God 100% baby with the bathwater gone. So I'm going to read one section from the Catechism. This is uh, um, when it's talking about, it's the introduction, paragraphs 27 to 30, if you're looking for it. Um, quote, This intimate and vital bond of man to God can be forgotten, overlooked, or even explicitly rejected by man. Such attitudes can have different causes. Revolt against evil in the world. Religious ignorance or indifference. The cares and riches of this world. The scandal of bad example on the part of believers. Currents of thought hostile to religion. And finally, that attitude of sinful man which makes him hide from God out of fear and flee his call. So yes, all of those things. All of those things were impacting me. Um, the pain and suffering of this world confused me. I was ignorant of what the word God really meant in the Bible. I was drawn to pleasures like drinking. I saw many bad examples of believers that made me question faith entirely. And my education, along with movies and books I read, was purposefully leading me by the nose to a path of belittling and laughing at those with faith. I remember trying to read Genesis and thinking, this is ridiculous. And only 15 years later did I realize that my understanding of God was ridiculous. I had to reset completely. Life has a funny way of beating you into a state of reasonableness so that you can try again. So to reset, I started with this. So this is also from the Catechism, paragraphs 39 to 43. God transcends all creatures. We must therefore continually purify our language of everything in it that is limited, image-bound, or imperfect, if we are not to confuse our image of God. 
the inexpressible, the incomprehensible, the invisible, the ungraspable with our human representations. Our human words always fall short of the mystery of God. Admittedly, in speaking about God like this, our language is using human modes of expression. Nevertheless, it really does attain to God himself, though unable to express him in his infinite simplicity. Likewise, we must recall that between creator and creature, no similitude can be expressed without implying an even greater dissimilitude, and that concerning God we cannot grasp what he is, but only what he is not, and how other beings stand in relation to him. So, God transcends all creatures, including myths like Zeus. He created everything, including our ability to invent myths like Zeus. We are continually learning more about creation. We are not done learning or discovering wonders here because we are not God. This should be a cause for awe, and Carl Sagan is dead on correct. If he met people who understand God, he could have had terrific conversations about that very fact. But he had met people with the cartoon version, and so, of course, he threw it a baby out with the bathwater, just like I did. But God is nothing like Zeus. He's way beyond us, transcending our world, while at the same time reaching down to us and saying, Boo! from time to time. He alerts us that he's present. Most importantly, most importantly, we cannot control God. And this is the critical point of reading the Tower of Babel story. The pagan gods are far more mundane and limited than the God of the Trinity. The pagan gods live in mountains or in the forest. They are the moon. They are the stars. They are within the universe. The classic blunder of so many believers is that they assume God is an object in the universe, like how we think of Zeus. So whenever you hear, all gods are the same, or I just believe in one less God than you do, you know immediately the speaker does not understand the Christian concept of God. Uh, Sagan's small God comment and Bertrand Russell's famous teapot God it betrays their fundamental misunderstanding of what the word God means to Christians and specifically to Catholics. Uh, the architect of the universe is not standing in the solar system like a tour guide, like, a, like he's there to help us out um, somewhere in the meteor belt. He transcends all creation. He transcends all things, but is still a living God that can reach us on a very personal level. So, when you read the Tower of Babel story, the important things to keep in mind are these. I have several of them, six of them. The tower is a ziggurat built to reach the sky. Babel means gate to God, or stairway to heaven if you like that better. The ancient cultures believed that these pyramid temples made a connecting point between heaven and earth. They often have a stairway to an altar on the top. They exist across the world, even in Aztec and Mayan cultures that never had any apparent contact with Mesopotamian cultures. And to me, this starts raising hairs on my neck, and I have to resist the urge to blame aliens. Ancient aliens has made a lot of hay off of this, these uh, curiosities across cultures. But we'll get to that maybe a little more, a little later. Two, second point, ziggurats were built to worship gods of mythology, and most commonly the sky god, also known as the storm god, also known as thunder god, also known as fertility god, or the rainmaker. This god goes by various names in history. Baal or Baal, Marduk, Zeus, Jupiter, Thor, and more, like uh, 
Perun, Indra, Dias, uh, and some I can't even pronounce, but the storm god is all over the world. Um, you can see because people saw storms and rain and they started making up this god or for maybe another reason, they started to discover this god. We'll go into that later too. This god, the storm god, was often depicted with bull horns and or holding lightning bolts. So in mythology, the sky god defeats the primordial god or gods. And this tale is called the succession myth, and it gets repeated in Babylon, in Greece, in Rome, and many other places. This god is a shape-shifting rapist who can appear as a bull or a serpent or a swan or an eagle or even a shepherd. Um, as Aomer says in the two towers, <clears throat> the white wizard is cunning. So is the fertility god. So is the storm god. Okay, that's the second point. The third point, this one's going to hopefully maybe blow your mind. Satan is the storm god. Okay, I already introduced the word, the S word. Satan is the storm god. This came as a shock to me since I enjoy reading Greek and Roman mythology. But really, how did I miss it for so long? The horns often depicted on Satan are exactly like the bull horns of ba Baal and Baal equals Marduk equals Zeus equals Jupiter equals Thor equals Satan. So Baal, Baal is Zeus. Baal is also Satan. <laughs> they are all the same character. I have some links of uh, things that go into that. Jesus even calls Satan Beelzebul. And this is a version of Baalzebub, the Philistine deity of Baal, Zeus, the equivalent of that. Now, the fact that Jesus calls Satan ba Beelzebul <laughs> uh, is actually funny because that is a mocking name that riffs on Beelzebub. Uh, Prince Baal or Lord Baal is modified <laughs> modified by Jesus to mock what is Baal of flies or the Lord of dung. So there's actually a, this mockery took me aback once I realized it because if Jesus mocks the sky gods, it proves that God does have a sense of humor. Uh, there's wordplay going on, and Jesus again mocks the sky god a second time when he gives the nickname Sons of Thunder to James and John in Mark chapter 3, uh, which means sons of the sky god, a.k.a. Zeus or Satan. Uh, like most nicknames, it's not a compliment. You don't get a nickname typically for uh, something cool about yourself. It's something that you get made fun of for. Um, James and John, you may remember, call for revenge on those who oppose Jesus, and they are acting like Baal or Zeus or Satan. James and John, ask, they ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And what does Jesus do? Jesus turned and rebuked them. So he, he's telling them, that is not how I operate, fellas. Jesus is the polar opposite of the cruel and vengeful sky god. In other words, Jesus is God and God is love. Uh, this is the opposite of the fallen angel named Satan, who shapeshifts and goes by many other names. Um, yet, for some reason, of course, God allows Satan to divide, distract, and deceive us in the world, which is the great head-scratcher for us all and takes a lifetime to understand and I will also be going into some of that in this very long series. The fourth point to keep in mind, all myths are victory tales and founding narratives. They are written and told to justify the current state of affairs in the world. So when you read any myth, you have to read it from the perspective of the myth makers. Babel is part of Israel's story, 
But if the other side told the story of Babel, it would be a very different tale, uh, where the temple at Babel would be seen like St. Peter's in Rome or Notre, Notre Dame in Paris. Um, that's the way myths work. So you have to do have to keep that in mind. And people like to they like to point that out about the Bible as well. And fair enough, you know, we can do that. That's it can actually take that criticism and uh, still make for very good arguments, um, far better than some story about the lightning God or the sky God. Number five, the fifth point, the intention and goal of building the Tower of Babel versus the intention of building something like St. Peter's or Notre Dame is starkly different. The gate to God is being built up to the sky. The Tower of Babel is meant to bring God down to earth, just like in Ghostbusters. And we're going to, I'll talk more on that later too. And what is their goal? It's to make a name for the people, to make a name for themselves. St. Peter and Notre Dame are built to give glory to God, not to people. This, a, this is a huge flip, the inversion um, of what is happening at Babel. Um, this fundamental misunderstanding of God makes all the difference, both in our individual lives and in the pursuit of nations. And six, this last point is the God of Israel cannot be controlled. He does not need us. We need him. So if you read the Tower of Babel at only the surface level, at the uh, how the tiger got its stripes level, where it is only about how the various languages came to be, then you will get something out of it. That's a valid literal reading, but you will miss the greater significance of the story and much more deeper themes and topics in there. So know before you start, God doesn't make transactions with his creatures. Praying for what you want can work out in strange ways, but it always works out in how God wills it. He gets the last laugh, you might say. Even the great destroyers of faith, uh, think of Karl Marx or Voltaire or David Hume, Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins, um, et al. They are part of God's plan somehow. Uh, he allows doubt and struggle for reasons that we cannot understand. But like Joseph in Egypt, uh, when, when he realized that all his struggles had a purpose, he said uh, to his brothers, even though you meant harm to me, God meant it for good. So without this understanding of God, um, we are trying to manipulate him and make him dance. That's the Tower of Babel story. But he is the one who makes us dance. And it's much easier to dance with him than to try to lead him. He is Tolkien and we are Frodo. We are his characters. We cannot reach up and grab the author. And that is exactly what the builders of Babel are trying to do. And that is a really, really bad idea for us to try both then and now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Why Did Peter Sink? We'll come back with more parts on this, many parts of this to come on the topic of me speak Babel. Thanks, everybody.